Well, we're joined today on Inside Infrastructure by Laurie Argus, the CEO uh, of Melbourne Airport. Laurie, thanks for joining us today. Um, I wonder if you could just tell us a, a little bit about who you are and what you do. Oh, thank you. Thank you, Adrian. Thank you for having me. Uh, so I've been the CEO of Melbourne Airport for 12 months now. I have been lucky enough to be with that organization for the past eight years. Uh, but I am an aviation person born and bred, so number of years in airlines, originally Canadian. So I have done my last 23 years in Australia and uh, the last eight years in Melbourne and loving it. And a strong Melbourne accent. A strong, yeah. very strong <laughs> Melbourne yeah. accent. Now, I, I, I read somewhere that you've been quoted in the past as saying, aviation's in your blood. You, there's, there's a family history to aviation, I understand. There is. So I was born in Gander, Newfoundland, where my dad was an air traffic controller. My uh, mother was a travel agent. My uncles were pilots. And I spent most of my um, time in Gander at the airport and in the tower with my dad. And uh, it's just always been in the blood. So is, is that that's the main business in town? Is that why everyone was in it? Or is your family uniquely uh, aviation focused? No, so I think back in the, back in those days, God, that makes me sound aged. Uh, back then, it was quite a large airport. So it was quite a large international airport for the Defence Force, but also right. aircraft back then had to stop at the last fueling point before Europe. So right. Gander was actually quite big on the map um, back in those days. So, so it was sort of the, the through airport if you were doing the hop from from Europe to Correct, North through America. to North America. North America. Um, now, of course, it's quite a small regional airport because those days are gone and the aircraft um, have lo much longer range, so don't need it. And then I think the defence piece is, um, is quite small now. So I went through about five years ago and it's uh, got a, flu a few... Um, regional flights a day and that's that's about it but of I course now that. famous for the fact that it still has a very long international runway so that's why it was mm -hmm. chosen in september 11th to take on so many aircraft when the um, american airspace closed mm -hmm. yeah so there were there were a bunch of aircraft that were in the air american airplace airspace closed and they a bunch of those landed mm -hmm. in gander in gander that's yeah. right <clears throat> so gander had 28 uh, heavies on the tarmac, and uh, and obviously that that's why that story is so popular now because of the story of how Gander didn't really have a lot of infrastructure to house that many people, but mm. um, families and everyone pitched in to look after those passengers for a number of weeks. It's interesting you should mention that changing structure of of aviation. We had a, an airport mm. that was strategically significant, um, but because of changing technology and patterns, it it became no longer important because you could do the direct flights. And we're in the kind of next phase of that now where the, the the hub airports may become overtaken by the fact that you've got super long range and therefore you don't need to stop mm. part ways and one thinks of Qantas's Project Sunrise. Do you, do you, you know, without naming them, can you foresee places that are currently really busy that just will no longer be on the, the global aviation map? Oh, I think, I mean, I think... I we think a lot about hubs and whether or not hubs will continue to be hubs. So, but I think that is quite unique to each country. So, what's the relationship with the airline? You know, what what's the structure of their network? But to your point about long range aircraft, the one thing it does do for Melbourne in particular is put more destinations on the map. So, aircraft that couldn't reach Melbourne before, or we were just off the range to to reach, which is obviously why a lot of aircraft hub through Sydney, you know, we're getting a lot more access to a lot more routes now than we ever have before. And I see that trend continuing. So it's really great opportunity for point to point destinations like ourselves to, to leverage that. Mm. And, and a, a flight 
direct to London is conceivable? Well, I think in the future, absolutely. I mean, we've just announced Melbourne, Dallas. I think that's 17 mm-hmm. and a half hours. Uh, we're in discussions with uh, Turkish Airlines about, um, you know, their incoming aircraft in the next few years and the, and the range is there. So I, I do think that will just continue to um, get longer and longer. I don't know how travelers are going to feel about those longer and longer flights. I know Qantas recently announced, I think they've got stretching areas and, and opportunities mm. to get up and hydrate. I mean, it's it's a long haul, but... I've done the the Perth London one in economy with three kids. And now, why um, did you do that, Adrian? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, how many hours is that? Uh, I think it. I, I think it's scheduled at sort of sixteen and a half, mm-hmm. but it was a bit quicker in practice. Mm-hmm. Um, m- my feeling on it was uh, beyond about ten hours. It's just a bloody long time on a plane, and it didn't really mm. make that much difference to me. Like you just sort of okay. accept that's going to be grim for a mm. while. Um, I I have to say, I only did it with my wife and the three kids. My wife did it with just her and the three kids <laughs> on the way back because I travel back separately. I think she had so a, your a wife slightly grimmer experience than I did. <laughs> it has to be said. But, but the fact that you can go from Australia to mm. your final destination in Europe mm. in one go, mm. it, I frankly, is a bit of a game changer. Yes. Yeah. And I think to your point, you just bunker down because obviously the less time traveling is the more opportunity for your holiday yeah, or, or whatever you're doing. And that's one of the biggest challenges for Australia being so remote. And mm. when you do travel that, you know, you prepare for, you prepare for those trips and, and yeah. you, you just bunker down. Yeah, mm. Maybe not by myself with three children but uh, <laughs> you can take mine if you want <laughs> no, thank you <laughs> I, d- I do long haul with my two that's more than enough <laughs> so you mentioned you've been CEO for 12 months can you talk us through the roles you had before that uh, and give us a bit of background because it what, what we found interesting when we sort of were preparing was just how how many different roles you've had within mm. ava- in, within aviation yeah look and, and that's a legacy of my dad's I think and it was funny mm. I was talking to my dad about this not so long ago when um when we were talking about that that um, story, and he said, you know, it was actually um, my stepmother who gave me some advice that, in my mind, I guess when I was much younger, I thought my dad gave it to me, but he claims that she she had the advice and he repeated it. Um, but the early advice for me was just do every single job that you can to make yourself as least dispendable as possible in a company. And aviation, certainly from an airline perspective, is is you know it's it's tough. It's 24-hour by 24-hour management, it's tight margins, it's cost bases are very variable, and, you know, it's not an easy industry to be in. Of course, it's an exciting industry to be in, um, but when you look at profitability of airlines and the impacts of of all kinds of different dynamics, it's not an easy mm-hmm. um, place to be. So when I started out, I just, I just always kept that advice. So I did a number of roles uh, before I got into leadership roles. You know, I started my career as a check-in agent. Um, did, I always talk about the fact that I, I did put my hand up for every job, including mishandled baggage I did for 18 months. Worst job on the planet. Maybe, well, there's, I'm sure there's a few worst jobs on the planet, but um, meeting people off of every aircraft when they have no luggage is not an easy environment. Yeah. And usually once you do um, get them reconnected with their bag, they're really still probably not happy to see you because it's been too long. Um, so, you know, my early career was just getting as much exposure as I could. And then um, I got the opportunity to move to Australia and uh, did a number of leadership roles through Virgin Australia and then ultimately ended up at the airport. And the airport's been interesting for me because 
Having always been in aviation, doing the land side portfolio was probably the most unique to me because mm. I hadn't really had a lot of deep experience with commercial running separate commercial B2C businesses, which our land side ground transport business really was that. And that just really, sh you know, got me more into the infrastructure side. So I guess the you know, really understanding deeply the airport, the property development, you know, the retail operations, the land side operations. So I've done a number of portfolios, but um, then ultimately ended up back as chief of aviation and then was um, got the opportunity for the internal promotion. So, mm. yeah, it's yeah. been it's been thrilling and challenging. Like an internal promotion is is probably not as easy as I thought it would be to transition, but mm. um but great to come into a business already knowing all aspects mm, yeah. of the business. Congratulations. I, I was going to, um, we'll, we'll come back to the, the airport and infrastructure bit yeah. in a minute. I just want to understand that the, you sort of very, almost quite flippantly said, and I got the opportunity to come to Australia, mm. but could you talk us through that? Like yeah. that's, that's quite a big thing. Yes. So I, I had done 10 years with an airline called Canada 3000. They're no longer around. Um, but I'll never forget the night because I was running network operations and that was back in the days when we used to manually do all the weight and balance of aircraft with a calculator and a pen. That terrifies wow. me now as a frequent flyer to think <laughs> of my young self in my 20s doing the weight and balance of a wide body aircraft um, <laughs> with a pen and paper. Do but you still do the mental calc in your head when you're boarding a flight? <laughs> no, other than I think the average weights of humans was a lot less back then wow. than it seems to be now. But, um, but uh, I was working in network operations. It was in Edmonton, Alberta. It was about minus 38. And I was sitting there at three o'clock in the morning when the fax machine came through for a job in what I thought was pronounced Brisbane, Australia. <laughs> and I just, I, I looked at the job ad, it was for a station manager in Brisbane, and I thought, I'm a little bit tired of minus 38 and night shifts and winter weather. And I was 26, I think, and I just thought, you know what, I'm just going to put my hat in the ring. And it, you know, people always say, oh, ne never say you're lucky in an opportunity because it shouldn't be luck, it should be capability. But I actually think I was lucky in that opportunity because there was lots of competent people that applied for that job, much more experienced than I was at the time. But I was 27, I was single, I was easily movable. And I think that, um, you know, just I got that opportunity because I was able to, to go quickly because they were coming into the Australian market quickly and just really and got the job and packed up and came over. Were you thinking about that as like a, a two-year horizon, something you'd do and then Yes, 100%, or? two years maximum. So my parents will still say, thank you very much, Laurie, for leaving everything in a storage shed and saying that you were going to be back. <laughs> and then ultimately they had to empty it. They had to sell my house, sell my car. I left everything in situ and said, oh, just, just go do this for a while and come back. Yeah. And um Funnily enough, it was one of my now still dear friends that was worked for Qantas at the time who introduced me to my now husband. And, you know, of course, I said, I'm only here for a couple of years. And uh, and that was that. And then and then I stayed and then my sister came and now my mum's here and then kids and life. And and now so I've got family in Australia and family back there. Mm -hmm. And 23 years later, I obviously haven't mm. left. Do you get back much? No. Well, Yes and no. So we, I used to go back every year quite easily um, until I had small children. And yeah. like, uh, unlike you, Adriana, was not brave enough to do the 24-hour commute with small children. So I had a bit of a rule of thumb that I wanted my son 
my kids to be over five. Uh, but we did luckily go back for a very um, big Canadian trip in 2018, which I'm forever grateful for because, of course, COVID um, mm. happened yeah, not long it. after that. So uh, we do plan to get back this summer again to see the family. And, of course, we always they always come this way as well. Hold on. Which summer? Their summer or our summer? Their summer. Mm. Oh, that's good yes. timing then. Yeah. yeah. And are they budding aviators as well? What's their... Uh F- family wise no actually my my sister's in in the university field and uh you know my dad's long retired i guess from air traffic controlling your children and uh and yeah so you know i do i do always hope that my i always talk to my 15 year old about hoping that she'll be my succession plan at the uh, <laughs> <laughs> at the uh, at the airport and i i drag my kids around the airport all the time but not a lot of family left in the industry actually i have a few mm. cousins that are still pilots actually mm. i have a, a cousin that's a helicopter pilot and a cousin that's a pilot with air canada so mm. a few connections there still mm. but not as many but of course you had a tint a stint outside of the aviation sector in the utilities space a, a short one what was the you know, you know what aviation's was thinking in your blood. There? <laughs> it's a bit of a change of direction briefly yeah so i had my i had my son at 40 so that that um was a little bit later in the game than i guess i probably thought i was going to have another child and i remember being on maternity leave and i was always known as a ground operations expert so i was approached all the time for airport opportunities, but I just couldn't really break through that ceiling of getting people to see me as anything other than an operational airports person. So at the time, I remember kind of, you know, having this early midlife crisis that I had the three-week-old at home. I was ticked over 40 and thought, um, maybe it's time that I just actually genuinely do something else so that I can prove to maybe myself and the industry that you can have general leadership skills outside of technical expertise. Uh, so I did that. I just um, put in my resignation at Virgin Australia, had an absolute cold sweat panic attack um, for many weeks after that, got the Queensland Urban Utilities opportunity. And I, I loved it. I did. It was really quite transformational. They were looking for somebody that wasn't kind of an industry expert because they were looking for transformation. And it, that, that 18 months really taught me that I, I always say whether it's pipes or planes, you're just really managing things and people. Mm. And most of the complex challenges are, are the same. And yeah. so um, it was super fun until Mer- Melbourne Airport knocked at the door and then I said, okay, no, I do, I do. I've got to go back. <laughs> got to get back to it. <laughs> Can I ask, a chief of aviation, what, what do they do? Uh, so the chief of aviation in Melbourne Airport structure is all parts of aviation. So it's business development and attraction. So it's flying around the world to meet with airlines, you know, doing analysis, route analysis on why we should convince them to choose Melbourne over any other city. Uh, it's running the operations, mm. uh, so security, um, all, all of the infrastructure that goes through the airport, as, as well as, um, so, you know, everything from airline marketing and relationships through to partnerships with Tourism Australia and Victorian Tourism Industry Council. Uh, and I think that for me, the COVID experience of the aviation has been one of, I think, the most proud moments of my career because it really meant that we had to build those relationships. So, um, you know, the relationship with the state government on aviation attraction, where we are now. I was lucky enough to, just this morning to be announcing Double Daily, China Southern, standing there with Minister Carroll, who is such an advocate of our industry and has just done 
so much work for attracting aviation back to Victoria and the impacts of that on the broader economy. Um, you know, it's, it, it was a really interesting time, but that kind of stakeholder relationship piece is also critical for the chief of aviation. Mm. And I guess dealing with an airport that went to effectively zero revenue from that part of the business for a period of time. Mm. You, you, so you're doing all that within an environment where... You don't know what the economics of the business are. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we we had the the lowest of the lows. I think there was two the two hundred and eighty people that moved through the airport one day, and I came in all all through COVID. I was part of the essential workforce. We we had to shut down a lot of assets and make a lot of tough decisions around costs because we had zero revenue or one percent of revenue. Because of course. I think people forget we get paid by passengers. So when there's no passengers, um, there's no mm. there's no revenue stream. And th- those were some pretty dark days. But what they also taught us is that we were all in. So whether it was the Department of Health or, um, you know, biosecurity or border force or whatever the scenario, all of the agencies was kind of all hands on deck. And it just it built some really strong relationships that we still rely on now. And I think it's meant we've come out so much stronger than before. Mm-hmm. Our linkages to all of our partners, um, whether it's, um, you know, the Committee for Melbourne or any of those industry bodies, I just think Melbourne has come out of it so much stronger uh, and so much better connected. Did your experience of 9-11, like having that gander kind of experience sort of fresh in mind, did that colour the view of how we would bounce back from covid in, in the space of aviation in the last couple of years? Yeah, I mean, I think that um, it's interesting. So Lyle was still the CEO when COVID started and um, and you sit there and you kind of go, as an aviation expert, you go, well, we've been here before, right? We've had mm. SARS, we've had 9-11, we've had yes. GFC. Um, and, and in the early days, it was really quite contained to China at that point. And I think... I think we all thought we could just dust off the playbook of any sort of kind of serious aviation or global issue, um, but none of us could have seen just how enduring it was, I think. So, um, but that said, you know, we do feel genuinely very ready for now any kind of contemplated future black swan events. And I, I think it really has changed the game about how leadership thinks about risk management and profiling and business continuity. And it's kind of, I think, really tested us and taken us up a notch in, mm. in our preparation for uh, whatever's next. Mm-hmm. Now, I think that like most people think that they have an element of ownership over their their local airport. If you're a regular traveller, you go through regularly, you think you know it. But my suspicion is that most people don't really know mm. the airport that well, I wonder if you could just tell us a little bit about the, the, the business. I know you have the the, um, the the sort of non-aviation components and the logistics components and just explain to us the, the Melbourne mm-hmm. Airport site and all the different things that make up the Melbourne Airport. Yeah, yeah. so it's um, it's interesting because we're, we, we're the owners of Melbourne and Launceston Airports and um, when I think about Melbourne Airport, we're, we're quite a small business. Melbourne Airport, the corporation, we've got about 400 people. So there, but there's 20 odd thousand people that work at the airport. So we're we're just this massive connector of both people and supply chain. Um, but our business structure is really kind of four quite unique businesses. We have a, a large property business. We're 
we're blessed with the size of the land bank that Melbourne Airport has. We always say, you know, I think it's double, double the land bank of, of Heathrow and, uh, and, and others. So large land bank, quite unique propositions. If you, you know, Urban Surf is a great example. When we first started talking about Urban Surf, I'm like, I'm sorry, it's Melbourne. So we're doing an outdoor surf park <laughs> at the airport. And for anyone that experiences urban surf, I mean, it's chock-a-blocked every day, including wow. in, in, the, uh, in the winter. Um, and people fly from all around the world to experience that, hmm. that, um, that surfing precinct. So, you know, the property portfolio, building that out to have great experiences that mean people will come to the precinct, not just for travel. Um, our retail environment, I mean, we, we are enormous when you add up all the um, number of retail stores that we have throughout the precinct. We just recently signed a long-term partnership with Latte for Duty Free, uh, really big business as well. You then have your ground transport portfolio, which in itself is is a is a beast. <laughs> you, know, you think about the size and scale of the number of bus companies, taxis, Ubers, you know, mm. public pickup and drop off, car parking, all of the products and services. Is that, and that, that's a revenue line for you, some some of that? Yes. So so car parking, of course, and then we have an access charge to build the infrastructure right. out for our, for anyone that comes in and out of the precinct. Um, and then and then our aviation business. So but they're all kind of connected because we talk about I mean, we, we were lucky enough in, during COVID that there was still some property businesses that were really not affected by the pandemic because their businesses were quite unique and mm. not connected to aviation. And or I mean, and of course, there's some businesses that were hugely successful, like parcels and shopping, mm. <laughs> online mm. shopping. Mm-hmm. Um, but then every, everything breeds from our aviation portfolio, because if you don't have the passenger, then they're not parking and they're not shopping, of mm. course, and, and the like. So so our, our business units are quite dependent on each other, uh, but they're quite unique, different streams of, um, of uh, businesses, if you like. What's the relative size of the passenger and the freight business around the airport? Well, it's interesting. I mean, aviation on its own is about six, roughly 60% of the business, but then um, if you kind of tally up everything that's connected to the passenger, then it's you know it's mm. about eighty five percent of your mm. of your business. But of course, the freight business is dependent on the passenger because a yes, bunch of it's in the belly. Correct, of the plane. and yeah. that that was a bit of a game changer for us too because freight just kind of came and went and mm. and was. I don't want to say, you know, under the radar, but it was just... It was under the floor. It was under the floor. (laughs) And then when the passenger planes stopped, um, that is when we really realised that Victoria Mm. is extraordinarily dependent on our freight. And... um, and airlines, I mean, airlines were ripping out passenger seats to put more freight into passenger aircraft to get in and out. And so, and then mm. you saw, of course, the knock-on effects of um, what it costs for shipping and mm-hmm. and and the like. So, and, you know, it's interesting because that's just completely reversed back now. So now, again, it is all kind of passenger aircraft mm. with freight um, underneath. But it really made us realize the importance of our freight business and making sure that we invest in that. So whether that's us reviewing opportunities for cold storage, um, you know, CS, the CSL manufacturing, um, that, re- that was a really big announcement. So making sure logistically that we've got everything that our partners need to be successful for freight and logistics mm. is uh, mm. is critical. And of course, that's heavily dependent on our 24-7 license to operate. Yeah. So, mm. um, so it taught us a lot. COVID taught us a lot. It taught us how to be more savvy around our operations, 
taught us to know intri- intricately, you know, every business line inside and out and uh, and where the, the future opportunities lie, really. Mm. Um, you mentioned in one of your answers Heathrow, and so I'm not going to miss the opportunity to draw a comparison <laughs> between Heathrow's <laughs> pursuit of additional runway capacity and your current process mm. to um, look at the additional runway at your airport. And I am, of course, struck by the fact mm. that it's taken Heathrow I don't know, 30, 40, 50 years, and the prospect Mm. appears no closer than it once was. And that there is almost an assumption that it will happen here. And Mm. I'm really interested to get your perspective on how that additional capacity, the operating license, the the curfew-free nature can be preserved and that built out uh, and and that opportunity not be lost as as it has been elsewhere. Yeah. so I'll reserve any judgment on Heathrow. <laughs> I'll talk, a, talk a little bit about our runway. I, we are uniquely different. So mm. when you think about um, some of the challenges around caps and curfews in Europe, um, there's a lot of different choices. So the rail choices in Europe are much different to the flight choices, and access to different modes of transport I think is is makes it different if you like. You know, Australia, we are at the end of the line. So long haul travel for us is a reality for a really long time. Now, that's why things like the Jet Council that's recently been announced and and solving for SAF and sustainable fuels, Mm. and we're we're heavily invested in that to make sure that we're sustainable. But equally, I do think the proposition of Australia is different. Um, And then you couple that with this golden triangle piece around Brisbane, Sydney, Melbourne. And the reality is Melbourne has been eking out capacity of its one and a half runways for much longer, mm. I think, than it probably should have. So, Why do you describe it as one and a half runways? Well, because everyone says we co- it, it is the third runway, technically, mm. but our, t- our runways are a cross w- runway and mm. the weather heavily affects the operation of them. So we don't get currently mm. two full runway capacity mm. Um, operations. So quite often we have to um, put in place different operating methods for weather. And uh, and so it, it's not kind of a parallel system. Yeah. So I talk about the parallel system because the third runway is the parallel system. And that's what's critical to keep up with um, the growth of this country. So, um, you know, we're the only major airport that doesn't have a parallel system in Australia. And, you know, pre-2019, when when there was weather disrupts and things, you know, if Melbourne wasn't operating well, it it disrupted the entire country. So you think about the mm. statistics of kind of 60% of corporate travel leaves Melbourne by 11am. Um, if we're not operating appropriately, then we're, we're pulling down the whole network. So I want to know who's flying outbound at 11am. I, I, I fly <laughs> up and down the country. It's like 7am. <laughs> Well, that's a really good point, though, Adrian. (laughs) That does lead me into passenger forecasting and Mm. segment forecasting right now is really hard because Mm. patterns are are all over the place. You know, our car parks used to be full and empty out on a Sunday night. Now the car parks are still full on a Monday, so Mm. we're scratching our heads about... But that's because the flexible work changes, I think, have just meant that 
people might have a few meetings online and then take 11 mm. o'clock flight and then do a few more meetings. Like it, it has kind of really disrupted us around travel patterns. Mm. So um, I don't know, maybe not everyone's as efficient yeah, as I, you getting out early <laughs> and doing a full day. But, um, <laughs> but we are seeing a lot of different patterns for, you know, our buzzword of pleasure, our business and leisure mix in that a lot more people mixing work and mm. travel. Um, I do it all the time now. I mean, I drag my family around when I'm working and, and or I'll, you know, get a couple of days holiday and then hop online for the next couple of days, but mm -hmm. still stay with them in a, in a location because at least you get to have dinner together. Like, I think the world has just changed a bit. So the patterns are difficult to predict currently. Mm. Um, but to the point around parallel system, I, th I think that is why we are uniquely different because people broadly accept that with Melbourne's growth trajectory for the population mm. just in itself says we need a parallel system um, and we need we need to keep up with demand and really we follow the demand patterns and we also follow our license to operate is that we are obligated to build infrastructure to keep up with growth and demand. So making sure that we're ready to accept those, you know, whether it's new foreign entrants, I mean, Pre-COVID, we've got 10% 10, 10 of our returned international traffic is new, new routes, mm. new airlines. You know, Vietnam's a great success story for us. It's at 160% pre-COVID levels. Wow. So we had one Vietnamese carrier pre-COVID. We've got four airlines traveling to Vietnam now, and the flights are full. So that just says to us that that market was underserved mm. um, before, before the pandemic. So mm. there'd be more of those markets out there. And I think people are really diversifying their their travel as well. Like I think people are looking for new mm. opportunities, um, going to different countries, what have you. So we've got to we've got to try to keep up with that and mm. forecast all that. How much capacity does the third runway actually get Melbourne Airport? So what what sort of volume of flights can it actually service? Yeah, so I think our current master plan goes out to seventy eight million passengers. Mm. Um, what are you currently? We're, we were at roughly thirty eight million, so okay. you know we'd be in the in the mid thirties now. I think um, so it doubles testing. Yeah, so it, it'll double our capacity absolutely, mm. and it, and and the. Um, and the consistency of the operation and the stability of on-time performance will be far improved. And the thing I do talk to communities about is, although we're building out all that capacity, that doesn't mean it's full from day one. So mm. I know that, you know, we, we have to address concerns around noise and community concerns. We have to address concerns around our license to operate for the environment and sustainability and making good sustainable procurement decisions for the runway. Um, but... We also need to make sure that we are transparent with people around how that noise affects them over a long period of time because, um, you know, the the runway will open from day one, but we won't have all of the new capacity from day one. So that's kind of mm. sees us well into the future. One of the interesting challenges you had is that the long-term plans had the runway, the new runway pointing the other direction and then you've, you've changed that. How did the community react to the idea that they... You know, one group were to be affected and now it's a different group. Yeah, it's, you know, that's been a real challenge. The the, the one thing I would say is that, and I always forget what they're called, because I didn't grow up in Melbourne, but the the book, the map, the... Oh, Gre Gregory's, is it? The is maze or the, 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 the Refidex thing. The, that's the Gregory's. It's Gregory's. Is it Gregory's? Yeah. I, yeah. Didn't know. I didn't grow up here either, <laughs> but I'm told it's Gregory's. <laughs> so the four-runway system has been in the master plan um, I think it was first published in the late 60s. So the idea oh, is it's like a hashtag type. Correct. Oh, right. So the hashtag has always been there. 
the only shift is our decision on which one to build next. Yeah. And that, mm-hmm. you know, I can understand the community's frustration to say, well, you came out a few years ago and said this direction was the best decision and now we've changed that. But it's been changed by data and science. So it's been changed by weather patterns. It's been changed by, you know, deeper understanding of of kind of future um, operational modes. So it's not to say that there's still not going to be a runway and um, built where we originally announced the direction. We're just sequencing them differently now. Now, that does mean some residents are affected at earlier rather than later. So we we really empathize with that. And we do a lot of consultation with the community on that. Uh, but the reality is the hashtag for runways has been in the plan for Melbourne since the 70s. Hmm. I was going to ask, I mean, you mentioned the gift of a very large land bank. It, it's both the strength and the weakness, isn't it, of the airport, that it is, it's quite removed, it's got that space to grow, but it, it's also got a lot of almost greenfield issues that could be developed out around, you know, development and growth in the corridors around it, etc. I, I just wonder whether, you know, this has been a really live issue, you've talked about it a lot, um, and you've talked about the partnerships you have with government to make that work. What, what What's in the gift of the airport to really influence and shape around the city and the way that the city works and serves the airport? Mm. I mean, I think that um, the one thing we're really passionate about is connectivity into and out of the airport and to the city. Mm. So we kind of, we talk about the fact that we think you know, we're, we're the face of the city, ultimately. When we when you land, we want your experience to be connecting you to Melbourne as a city um, and, and Victoria as a state. So we have a lot of partnerships around how we make sure, you know, that the roadways are working in and out. How do we make sure we've got enough access for all the different modes of transport and the like? But the other things we keep thinking about, and interestingly enough, this was kind of one of the drivers behind the rail being proposed to be underground originally, is we also need to think about well, well, what's beyond the airport? So whether that's midfield connections to the ultimate master plan that has a midfield terminal or that's regional connections that go well beyond the airport, I think we need to think of ourselves as, you know, a, an extension of the state and how do we make sure that we're growing appropriately in line with that and that we're thinking about mm. um, all of those kind of 10, 20, 30, 40-year horizons. Which brings us to the, the other precinct development stuff that, you're doing so the runway is mm. one part of it but there's actually a, um, a redoing of where the where the terminals mm. are and what what operates in each one and anybody that's been to melbourne airport recently will know that there's hoardings internally and roads being mm. built externally maybe just um, without retracing the whole master plan mm. what, what's going on in that kind of terminal precinct mm. yeah so there's so much is going on and um you know, I, we talk about the fact at the moment we're kind of like the meanwhile airport because there's so much construction going on that how do we make sure that the meanwhile airport is a good enough experience <laughs> for the traveller? You know, and it does come down to really important things around aesthetically making sure that the hoarding, um, you know, is is appropriately signed and that people have a bit of an understanding of where we're going on a journey. Um I was, for anyone that experiences T1 currently, I was thrilled yesterday that we finally opened the square just behind security. So there's no no more big hoarding in T1. You've got a great new experience there. I mean, the reality is you have to build infrastructure in a 24-7 environment while still maintaining uh, the passengers through it. So um, we're doing a really big upgrade currently to our international baggage system. 
I call that our heart surgery while we're still running the marathon um, because we're about to build an entirely new baggage system, but we still have to maintain the old one and still mm. accept 100,000 bags a day in the meantime. Um, so a really big upgrade of the international terminal, um, the roads you spoke about, we're doing an entirely new elevated loop road. So yes, for any of the listeners that gives me all of the feedback around the traffic management through the one road in and out. I hear you. Uh, we do have some really exciting developments in our road network over the next five years. Um, of course, hope, we're still hopeful after the federal review that the, the train is still in the in the mix. And, um, and then we've got the runway. So we're doing some pretty big transformational mm. projects, but as well as enhancing the terminals. And then, of course, ultimately in the master plan in the next 10 years is T5. And so we're starting airline consultation with that now to say, well, what do you need, Qantas? What do you need, Virgin? What do you need, international carriers? You know, what do you think the future looks like? Because the one thing that we want to make sure is we engage early with our customers to see, well, are we really building what they need mm. and what they want? And and that, I think, has been a bit of a game changer through COVID as well. To me, that just sounds like you've got these huge, like, challenges that you're working through akin to say Sydney Airport and Western Sydney Airport it's you've got these you know these really big infrastructure questions and then you're also managing huge throughput and capacity it, yeah it's really quite quite extraordinary it is it, it is extraordinary and it's interesting um because of course Sydney Sydney Airport um having having their capacity cap um, you know, they're, they're quite built out. Hmm. Western Sydney, uh, luckily enough, is a greenfield site. So wouldn't we all love to build an airport from scratch? I'd certainly <laughs> have another crack at Melbourne Airport. <laughs> 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 Might do something better around those car parks. <laughs> but, um, you know, we're really mm. connecting and building in situ mm -hmm. as well as kind of doing the game-changing transformation. But I genuinely believe that we, we, you know, our vision is to be Australia's favourite airport destination. I want people to be as proud of the airport as they are as Melbourne, as the city. Mm. And we've got a big task ahead because we have to be 2031, 32 ready. Um, we're going to be the biggest airport in Australia. That's, that's a reality. And we want to be ready for that when that passenger growth comes and when that population growth comes. I'd love to ask a bit more about ESG and sustainable aviation fuels, and you mentioned them earlier. I just wonder whether you can sort of map out for listeners just what that trajectory to net zero is going to look like and just some of the huge challenges around that with aircraft and, um, you know, sustainable aviation fuels are less than a percent of supply at the mm. moment. They're much more costly, you know, sort of three to five times the cost. And what um, the airport plays. Yeah, what the airport what's the, what's has the to do about it. Like, I think it's just this wicked problem. Um, yeah, I'd love to yeah. hear your thoughts on that. Yeah, so so we're pretty passionate about ESG in the space that we, you look at scope one and two and everything that we can do within our control, and we're really well-placed. So um, we've got a very large solar farm. We're just in the process of building another one. We, as, as an airport, we will be net zero by 2025. Um, and, and we have all kinds of things. We have, um, you know, everyone jokes and calls them Laurie's bugs, but we actually have, I'll explain. I know, Adrian, you're giving me a face. But we have some really cool innovation around shipping containers of larvae that eat organic waste. And mm. we are transferring 
a significant portion of our organic waste recyclable through some of those initiatives. So, um, you know, it's not just about removing straws and plastics and one-off plastics. Mm. It's about how do you get rid of, how do you sustainably get rid of your waste? So Mm. we're doing a lot in that space. Um, The scope one and two through the solar farms, through our tri-generation plant and all of our commitments around EV and um, everything in scope three we're doing as well. But of course, the elephant in the room is aviation fuel. Mm. Um, So that's why we're in front of, I guess, all sides of government and working with airlines to say, well, let's get really serious about this jet council, um, uh, net zero jet council. Let's look at um, supply and demand, of course, to your point. Um, Mm. You know, we've got big challenges in Australia because the feedstock and the the, just the complexities of what's required to actually meet that. Um, but let's do everything that we can. Mm. Uh, to the point around what's the play in the airport, the it's kind of one of the easiest problems for us in a way that fuel comes out as fuel. So whether mm. it's um, sustainable fuel or normal fuel, um, our infrastructure accommodates both. So that's the easy part. The tanks, the mm. structures, the pipes in the ground and the infrastructure shouldn't be too complicated. But to your point around airlines and their their individual commitments, so what percentage is going to be SAF versus normal, you know, what are the different targets around the airlines? We're trying to just work with industry standards to say, you know, what, what's IATA committed? What have our major carriers committed? How does that work into timing for how can we contribute? So we really kind of see ourselves in the SAF space as a conduit to, I mean, you see all the things that airlines are doing globally already. We want to be a part of that to make sure that our airlines are successful, but we probably won't be the main player in that topic. I mean, just mm. f- f- for a layperson's perspective, is it the kind of you have to modify the aircraft and that one just takes that type of fuel? Or could it do normal fuel on one leg and then be refueled with mm. a blend of sustainable on the next one? The, the, the underlying question I'm asking is, does, yeah. does everywhere all have to change at the same time or can this be done incrementally? I think it can absolutely be done incrementally because I think it already is. I think there's some airports um, globally that, you know, have 10% blends going through. Just into a normal aircraft Into a normal aircraft engine. But I do think, and I'm sure there'll be some jet fuel experts on the line thinking she has no idea what she's talking about. (laughs) But but my general understanding is, um, you know, it does go into the plane in the same ways. The challenge will be for that specific airline, what kind of accreditation are they getting for what percentage are they using? Mm. So in my mind, it kind of Mm. has to be an all-in equation Mm. for the fueling companies and for the airlines, because it will, I think it will be too hard to trace back Mm. where your percentage of blend is going. So I I do think it has to be a community solution. And and then that also sounds like it's, it's going to be something there where you can, you can abate a certain amount relatively easily, but actually getting full abatement will be much harder. harder I think. And I think that just seems like where. At what point does it start to get hard to get to actual net zero? Yes. Um, is that um, you know is that something that Australia is behind other countries on? So you mentioned other airport, uh, you know, other airlines and airports. Is it something we could lead on um, relative to other countries? Yeah, look, I think I think it's a tough one. I don't think we're behind, but I think we're, again, uniquely different. I think mm. that, um, you know, the size and scale of our country versus others. I do think in this, in this environment we may end up being takers of the solution and not necessarily leaders. 
That said, though, you do see lots lots of different innovations mm-hmm. announced. Um, you know, I know Queensland's doing some good work in, mm-hmm. in other states around whether it's feedstock or production, but I, I don't think that Australia will be leading the charge mm-hmm. on that topic. But I guess in my view, it's just, well, let's learn from the entire broader aviation community and, and influence where we can. Mm-hmm. Uh, on an, another area of carbon, I'm quite passionate about embodied carbon and mm-hmm. you're building a bunch of stuff and that stuff has lots of concrete yeah. and steel mm-hmm. in it. How are you approaching that challenge of the, the, the carbon we effectively bury in the ground yeah yeah so we're doing a lot of work on that it's an interesting topic we've just had our um i I sit on the australian airports uh board and we recently had our pavement conference which you kind of think well pavement no it's a little (laughs) bit boring but (laughs) it's the most topical right now and the most well-attended conference because it's interesting being like the the runway and the taxiways and yes that stuff yeah but but the to your point about embedded carbon, it's the technology mm. and what's coming mm. and how do and we. The so we have a lot of commitments around our social obligations for procurement, and we will make those green wherever we can. The one challenge we will face into though is what what are our obligations for concrete airfield in particular, our obligations to our regulator versus our ability to test new technology. Yeah. I think that is, if anybody on the line can answer that, you'll be a very successful firm, I think, because you've got this tension with the fact that airports have had long-term regulation, mm-hmm. very stringent guidelines on concrete and airfields. Appropriately and so. Appropriately yeah. so. So, you know, I think mm-hmm. I think that's why there's so much interest in pavement right now to say, well, what's everyone testing and trialling and who's having success and Who's going first and how do we get that accredited through our regulators? Um, I still think it's co- like in the early days, but we will 100% do everything that we can. And when, mm-hmm. when you look that. at your development timeframes for a really big intervention like a new runway do, and the development of that pathway for those technologies and techniques, do you think you'll converge with that and be able to do something that is dramatically lower embodied carbon or are you just going to be too early Oh, it's hard to say because this this thing won't be in the ground until, you know, 2030. Um, So it's still early days. It's in with the federal government for approval now for the design. But, of course, we're still exploring all of those opportunities um, with with ESG and the like. So the jury's out, I think, on just how much we'll be able to do. But I do know that, um, you know, we're all very committed to making sure that we reduce embedded carbons wherever practical and possible. Uh, but we have to do that in consultation with, with the regulator. Mm. I think the whole issue of green cement, green concrete is super interesting, mm. um, because well, particularly in this sort of sector where there's such a high bar for safety yep. and yep. where they want to look at the legacy of safety on a product where you're introducing new products into market that are like the chemistry is completely different. How do you get acceptance of that product, mm. right? I mean, I, I think it's really when, when really we talk to question. the broader infrastructure sector, mm. and principally in transport infrastructure, so bridges, roads, mm. train lines, tunnels, mm-hmm. the the prime feedback we get is the biggest opportunities are not in so much the greener materials as the dematerialisation. So, mm. how do you use it as an opportunity to? engineer more cleverly and pull out materials yeah i think for two areas in particular dams and runways that's really hard hard you, yeah. you know they're mm. just you, mm. the, the 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 safety conditions the regulations everything else that's really hard so it does lend itself more towards the alternate materials mm. 
but that's the same challenges for like mm. the reliance on that when you've got a, an A380 touching down on it yeah. however many times a day. You, you know, something that cracks differently in 30 years' time is not... That's right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. because yeah. yeah, it, it, people don't realise just how deep those... those um, overlays or runways have to go into the ground mm. to have A380s be able to land on, on them mm. all day, every day. Mm-hmm. Um, but to that point, though, I think that's where we've got to be solution-based for the entire infrastructure business and not even the infrastructure business. You know, if there's businesses that are overproducing green, then how can we leverage the community more broadly? Um, mm. I mean, I, 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 but I certainly take your point. I mean, runways are not not easy. Uh, mm. But mm. whether it's green fill or whether you're working, con- you know, consultively with other projects and and how you get creative around what you're procuring and what you build, yeah. mm. um, and going deeper in the other areas so that yeah. you, yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. Can I ask where Laurie's bugs are stored? <laughs> yeah, they're, they're <laughs> no, I don't know what they <laughs> like, do. I as mean, well. more information, <laughs> they please. Eat, <laughs> they eat the organic waste, and then right. we get like, them really fat, and then we like, give them a little bit of a diet and a break, <gasps> and then it's. And they, they produce I've, gas or what? They process. They process the, the and organic then they, waste. And then, it, and then that's part of the trigen system or is that part of something else? No, I mean, I wish I, had, I wish I had my head of environment here because he gets very excited about Laurie's bugs. And he <laughs> does have a little container on his desk that says Laurie's bugs. So next time them, we're in the bathroom at Melbourne Airport, no, so, are we to think that they're under us? No, so I can they? assure you that it's, it, it's contained within shipping containers. It's aeroside. It's netted. It's very oh, safe. Right. <laughs> but uh, they are busy eating most of our organic waste. Okay. <laughs> I love that. Yeah. I think that is really cool. Yeah, it's really, no, it's, it is really cool. But I mean, the the joke and the nickname came from the fact that I was, I'll, I'll never forget when I was sitting in the investment committee approving this project <laughs> and, and, and asking for clarity on, on exactly what, what these bugs do. <laughs> Larva. I think we should be calling them larva. larva. I don't know. Nick Laurie's larva. My head of environment would be rolling his eyes at this stage saying. <laughs> what about um, on the ESG front, what about technologies? So is the airport thinking much about the future of electric aviation? I, I know it's sort of looked at more in terms of short range, but what, what do you think could happen in terms of technology change in the yeah. next 10, 15 years in, in terms of the actual aircraft? themselves yeah. yeah i mean we did a fair bit of work when uber originally announced melbourne as its vtol mm. um kickoff location and and did some high level designs around where could they go how could it work and and of course they shared with us profiling around electric electricity use and the like i think it's really hard to gauge you know how many electric aircraft will we have where will they go how will it work how will it work with the regulator and the like but in my mind, we just want to be future-proof, ready to have enough electricity to provide. Uh, so, um, you know, we have an embedded network that we continue to grow, and we do that sustain- sustainably as well. We have a lot of green energy um, agreements and the like. So making sure that we're not going to be short on electricity is critical, mm. um, sustainable electricity. And and then really just having the locations and the charging um, mechanism. So mm. we're already in the throes of that for, you know, car rentals are quite progressed in their electric fleet. Um, there's a number of providers that are we're already in deep kind of planning and conversations with around ground electric f- fleet. Uh, but then making sure we're kind of 
we've got the electricity profiling right for the future to be sure that we're ready for that take up of demand for electric aircraft when when mm-hmm. they come. And of course they will come, but it's just a matter of when and, and how many and where they're going to go. Um, just on the, the broader technology and in the terminals, one of the hangovers of COVID has been staff shortages in mm. in the aviation sector. Um, well, firstly, are, th- are those staff shortages ameliorating? Are we, are we approaching back to normal? Or yeah, I think. Look, I think we are. I think um, the, again, the state government and and the federal government really put all hands on deck around. Um, getting visas flowing again and and migration numbers flowing again. So we are definitely seeing a significant improvement. Some areas better than others. So baggage handling is still um, an area that, you know, the airlines have to work quite hard to attract uh, people back into baggage handling. Mm -hmm. I mean, I've got theories about why that is, but probably not actual practical data. Um, So some roles are easier to fill than others, but I do feel that the precinct, you know, the precinct is back to 20,000 employees Mm -hmm. again. So um, we're, we're doing quite well now, I think in that regard. And then there's a, there's a broader economy wide narrative, global economy wide narrative around automation Mm -hmm. and, um, uh, approaches where that maybe remove people from repeatable tasks. So do you see opportunities in the airport to to start doing things like security and other things in a less people dependent way? Yeah, it's interesting. It's an interesting question because I'm a service person. So mm-hmm. um, AI is fine, but uh, and I think of course remove all the pain points of difficult labor processes where you can, but I still think the human customer intervention is important. And I remember I was talking about this actually this morning with our baggage program because I I got asked the question to say, well, if you've got this great new um, international best-in-class baggage system that tracks every bag, has individual trays, dispatches to aircraft, then do you still need ground handlers? You know, in my mind, even though we automated all the check-in years and years ago, of course, you still have check-in staff because people people need help. They need guidance. They need direction. They need to change their flight. They need whatever the scenario is. There will always be, I think, human intervention in some of those front-facing roles for the right customer experience. But do I think there's opportunities in AI and improvements? Of course. I mean, you hear all the stories about the global airports that are building fu- fully automated airports and AI and robotics. And I mean, there's lots. I mean, Amazon's a great example of having the majority of things um, roboticized, if you like. Um, so yes, opportunities for technology, but I still think there's opportunities to better enhance service. So, um, you know, we did our Stepping Forward program this year. We have all of our service providers go through customer service training mm-hmm. and Google Analytics and um, Skytrax, we got a Skytrax award for having, uh, you know, we were voted best staff in Australia recently. And I 100% believe that that is because we train all of our frontline staff, whether they work for us or not, on how to help the traveler, how to be kind, how to be understanding, how to be helpful. So I still think you're going to need human intervention, but of mm. course there's opportunities to improve technology. Um, you spoke about fully automated airports and the, the vision of I can turn up to the airport, walk through essentially a tube without taking stuff out of my bag and I get... I'm scanned and security checked and my face is logged and everything. Is that a genuine vision that could emerge to a reality or is that sort of Jetsons type stuff? (laughs) Well, the Jetsons were talking about VTOLs, weren't they? (laughs) No, No, absolutely it's a reality. I mean, I think that that if you look at 
what's happening in, with biometrics, if you look at what's, ha- what's happening with, you know, cutting-edge technology for processing of people, including security. So, um, of course, that will all come. I, I do think, though, that we need to be conscious that you've got to bring everyone on a journey around, you know, person, personal information and making sure that we're meeting the obligations of people's personal information and the like. But there's there's lots of there's lots of pointed proof out there that that that's that's on the way. And I'd love to get to a place. I mean, the international baggage is a great example of that'll have technology that has an early bag store so you won't have to wait around for check-in to open your bag just goes gets loaded gets stored and it'll get dispatched to an aircraft you know that technology is proven in in many airports across the world already biometrics is proven in many airports across the world already mm-hmm. so i think that of course it's coming but it's about how do you make sure you're choosing the right long-term sustainable solutions mm-hmm. uh, for that investment so and i do th- like we've got some work to do on that but but i do think we're on the journey mm-hmm. One of the things you've professionally championed is women in aviation. Mm. And um, I saw you recently hosted this awesome sounding FEM flight. Yes. uh, From Melbourne to Brisbane. (laughs) And I wondered if you might tell us a bit about that and when it stops through Sydney. Because I'd like to join. Yeah. (laughs) That was so much fun doing that project. That was, it was interesting actually. I was just telling uh, Minister Carroll this morning when the. the hardest thing we found to fill was a, was a camera woman. Um, there's not a lot of camera women mm. in uh, Victoria. There's lots of camera men. But, um, yeah, so we, we, we had an idea. So our team had this idea of imagine if we could get to a, an opportunity of doing a completely female uh, flight, including every, all of the supply chain within it. And at first we thought, well, how, how mm. actual practical is that? And... Um, and the team pulled it off, which I thought was hmm. incredible. So in partnership with Virgin and with Brisbane Airport and with Air Services, um, every single person that touched that aircraft that day was female. So we, we have female safety officers. I have some amazing female safety officers. Um, you know, we had female baggage handlers. We had female air traffic controllers, pilots, cabin crew, um, all the way through. So both the departure and the arrival. Logistically, it's not easy to roster stuff like that. So I, I don't know when we'll be coming through Sydney. <laughs> no one um, just but, yet. Um, but I thought it was really just quite symbolic to showcase. Um, mm. The thing that I get hung up about, I mean, I could go on a lot about um, gender equality and gender bias, but I talk to so many women that just traditionally don't apply for certain roles because in their mind they are predominantly male-dominated industries. And we know we see that challenge with not just aviation, but whether it's engineering or or technical expertise. Um, But once you showcase women in those roles, more women apply for those roles. It's Mm. statistically, we've seen that um, happen. And I always talk about saying, don't ever... Don't ever choose a female just because you're trying to get to some gender targets and have a female in a role. Choose the right person for the role, but open the funnel so you mm. have more females at the final point of decision mm. um, to compare to. So the more we can get people into a process, statistically, we know we'll be better off. So showcasing women in those roles, um, I think, is critical because then it just opens the eyes of other women to put their hand up for those roles. And I always say, mm. just put your hand up for every role. That's, you know. That's what I live by. Like having a female CEO of the airport. Well, that's right. I (laughs) I spoke about this, actually. I went to a a chief executive women's function recently in Hobart, and I was talking to a number of ladies that – 
it was just really interesting going through the CEO process and how people had a perception that either I was younger than the other candidates, even though I wasn't, or mm. that the opportunity for me as an internal female promotion was a bigger stretch than an opportunity for some of my um, external competitors. So it's just, you know, I know the stats say we'll be another 100 years on gender bias, but I just like to chip away at progress in the meantime. Um, and, you know, I've got a great board who took the opportunity to choose me. It's amazing. And on the fem flight, aside from the CEO role, which of those roles was hardest to find women on? Do you know what I mean? It sort of where where was the where was the funnel narrowest? Yes, in, in all of those areas that's of aviation. A, that's a good question. Statistically, I'm actually not sure, but I would mm. I would contemplate they were narrowest in baggage handling and mm. air traffic controllers, mm. but. Um, I'd have to actually, I actually don't know the answer mm. to that. I think we had lots of volunteers. I think the rostering logistics wasn't easy. Mm. Um, but that's the thing I said about the one thing we did find hard when we covered the story in media was we wanted a full female media team as well. And that's when we realised there wasn't a lot of That it's difficult women in, there too. It's yes. difficult there too. So, <laughs> um, so yeah, that would, be, that would be my intuition, but mm. I, I'm, not, I'm not sure actually. Mm. Interesting. Um, yeah. We're coming to the end of our time together and we always ask our guests the same final question, um, which is what is your favourite type of infrastructure and why? Oh, well, I have to say my own. I mean, how could I not? How do people normally answer this? Well, um, <laughs> I think so what we get, uh, it's airports, right? We've established it's <laughs> yeah, going to be airports the, for you. But, but is it airports under construction? Is it airports under operation? Which part of the airport do you enjoy spending the most time in? Mm. There, some of those Elaborate. answers. Yes. <laughs> I, um, of course, I, I would have to say um, aviation is my favourite infrastructure. But I do love, I, I love all infrastructure. I mean, if you look at some of the city buildings, if you look at um, what what we're doing around road and rail and transport in this state just in itself, what I absolutely love seeing play out, I hope, knock on wood, always successfully, is building big infrastructure in the middle of full operations. So for me, this this international baggage project is slightly terrifying, but also exciting. And I think that challenge around having the hoarding up, but then one day you can literally just unveil something pretty special that people have just walked by and never noticed before. Like, that's where I get my joy. Like when hmm. when the hoarding came down in T1 yesterday, I just went down. I was one of the first people there. So, so we're half the company, actually. We were all sitting down there. But I just watched. I just watched people experience an entirely new space and what did they look at and what were they interested in? Where did they dwell and why did they choose that and where did they walk and how did they stop? And I'm just always fascinated by human behavior in both construction but in ultimately the end experience. Mm -hmm. So any of that, like people always say, oh, you must be the most excited about the runway. I'm very excited about the runway, but in some respects you go, it's out in a field, we're going to put a fence around it. I'm not going to see it and touch it and feel it every day. I will drive out and look at it progressively, of course. Yeah. But kind of walking through something every day while you're building something special around people that have no idea mm. that you're building it, I think that's super fun. And that first moment of integration, like when it starts to when get it's, used, yes. is yeah, transformative. Yeah. Yeah. And so all it's really of the, the kind of service then. It's not, you're actually not that bothered about the concrete and steel and the other things. It's the infrastructure services that it provides. Well, I, th that? I think it's the outcome. 
like, yeah. like I was thinking about, like, ultimately, you want to make sure you're building, whether it's construction or any project or any investment, to have a purpose and an experience out the other side. And, um, like, nobody loves to go through security and nobody loves to stand in a check-in line or wait for their baggage. But it's like, how do you surprise and delight around that and make this the the experience as, as painless as I possible? How you do it is that donut shop on the right when you come through Correct. the in T4. Daniel's Donuts solves a lot of things. <laughs> and they've got great deals, like $6 for a donut and a coffee. Critical service. <laughs> but, it, but, you know, that's, that's the fun stuff. And, I mean, you see that in the city as well. I mean, I just look at that Metro project and I think, oh, my God, the people and the complexity and the thought processes and the work, like it's years and years and years of work and planning, mm. which no one will ever appreciate. But when it's, when it's open and awesome, that's what, that's what so I'm most proud. So your answer is airports and a hat tip to rail tunnels yes i think so i think it is we'll take that um laurie thanks so much for spending some time with us today thank you thank you both for having me thank you it's been fun well thanks for listening make sure you follow at infrastructure partnerships australia on linkedin to get updates on inside infrastructure this show was researched and produced by adam stevens isabel woodward harrison liapis and baronia blow